0: This is episode 210 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like William Shakespeare, our show is supported by our patrons. Unlock bonus episodes and exclusive history content at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life.
1: It all stems from originally a letter that he wrote in July, I believe, of 1610 that was written to a lady unidentified. And it was an account of everything that happened including the wreck and more importantly it it got back to london caused a sensation and then just a few months later the tempest uh, was was performed for king james in the banqueting hall in november
0: And now, here's Cassidy. On June 2nd, 1609, a ship named the Sea Venture set sail for Jamestown, Virginia. On the way, the ship was blown off course by a horrible hurricane. The storm badly damaged the ship, and all hands on board fought off the rising water until the ship ran aground on the island of Bermuda. After salvaging parts of the Sea Venture to build another ship, the stranded group set sail again for Jamestown, arriving in Virginia on May 10th, 1610. News of the shipwreck and tales of the castaways traveled back to England, due in no small part to a publication by one sea venture traveler, William Strakey, who wrote dramatic tales about the adventure, including one incident in Bermuda involving an indentured servant named Stephen Hopkins, who was accused of mutiny and narrowly escaped death. Stephen Hopkins not only survived the sea venture hurricane, but would travel 11 years later on the Mayflower as both a guide and the father to Oceanus, the only child born on the Mayflower while it was at sea. The dramatic life of Stephen Hopkins seems to have inspired our favorite dramatist, William Shakespeare, for his play, The Tempest, and specifically the character of Stefano, which came to life in Shakespeare's performance just one year after the cast and crew of The Sea Venture landed in Jamestown. Our guest this week, Andrew Buckley, is descended directly from Stephen Hopkins and has just completed a documentary film on his life. Andrew joins us today to share the story of Stephen Hopkins and walk us through the evidence that suggests Shakespeare's character of Stefano might have been inspired by the real life of Stephen Hopkins. Andrew Giles Buckley, creator and host of the public media series Hit and Run History, is a historical novelist, commercial fisherman, travel book author, opinion journalist, and world-class storyteller. Andrew is a two-time Emmy-nominated producer, founder of Hit and Run History in 2008. In their latest film, Stefano, The True Story of Shakespeare's Shipwreck, Andrew and his crew are hot on the trail of Stephen Hopkins, a Virginia-bound castaway who found his way not only onto the decks of the Mayflower a decade later, but immortalized on stage as the drunken Stefano in Shakespeare's final play, The Tempest. Stefano premiered on Rhode Island PBS in 2021, followed by stations from Washington, DC to Los Angeles. Learn about broadcast screenings, and video on demand opportunities to watch the film at hitandrunhistory.com. Hello, Andrew. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is I'm uh, really excited.
0: William Strachey, himself a poet and playwright, was on board the Sea Venture with Stephen Hopkins. Afterwards, Strachey published his account of his time on the Sea Venture. He called it a true repertory, a most dreadful tempest the manifold deaths whereof are here to the life described. Andrew, I want to ask about what year this was published and whether it was a popular publication, or I guess more poignantly, whether any of the survivors of the Sea Venture voyage made it back to London to tell their stories in person. I'm trying to make the connection here between how the story of the Sea Venture and Stephen Hopkins' story might have circulated around where Shakespeare could have heard it.
1: Right. Well, you know, if, if we look at simply publication history and such, you know, his account of this didn't get published until 1625, when he had a, 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 you know, nearly 15 years to, uh, to punch it up. And he died in 1623. So it was, it was posthumous as well. But the, the more important thing is that account of the wreck was part of a larger narrative that he put together about going to Virginia and such. However, the, it all stems from originally a letter that he wrote. In July, I believe, of 1610, that was written to a lady, unidentified. And it was an account of everything that happened, including the wreck. And more importantly, it, it got back to London, caused a sensation because there was this miraculous rescue, so to speak, a self rescue by the uh, people aboard the Sea Venture who were thought lost. And w- this wasn't just a ship that was. You know, just another ship going to Jamestown. This was the flagship of a fleet that was going to relieve the colony, and when it was lost, all the important people for the colony were also considered lost. And when they then rescued themselves by building two vessels on Bermuda and going to uh, uh, going to Virginia, and word got back to London, that was considered a miracle. The Virginia Company that was looking, that was in great financial straits at the time, used this as a marketing gimmick really to say, God has determined that England should prevail and have a North American colony. And so it it really turned things around. For a piece of propaganda, it was great, but it was seen as providential. And then just a few months later, the Tempest was performed for King James in the banqueting hall in November. So it it was really quite a thing that happened.
0: One of the reasons scholars suggest Shakespeare may have been influenced by the story of the sea venture when he wrote The Tempest are due to some of the striking parallels between Strachey's version of the event and Shakespeare's play. For example, in the play, after the storm tosses the ship, there's a general upheaval of roles on the ship where a great equality descends among the crew as everyone with able hands is called upon to try and save both the ship and the lives of those on board. Andrew, did this situation where nobles are being told off by the ship's crew or the nobles themselves stepping up to do the work of the crew on the ship, was this the actual situation for the sea venture there when after the hurricane had subsided?
1: Strachey's account is extremely dramatic, should I say cinematic. It was a really great account of what a hurricane was like, and a lot of people didn't have experience with tropical hurricanes in northern Europe, even the sailors themselves. Following that, the fleet of uh, ships was scattered, and even though the storm itself subsided, what they found during the storm is that there was a great leak that had occurred in the ship. Five feet of water was found in the hold the day after the uh, storm struck, and they started to pump, manning the pumps in three different places on board the ship 24 hours a day, and after a number of days, they had nine feet of water in the hole. They could not catch up with it. And but more importantly, the lieutenant governor, or the acting governor at the time, Gates, broke the company of people, 140 men, up between those three pumps on board the ship and, and creating buck brigades. And every man, regardless of position, was set to work those pumps. One hour at a time, one hour rest, one hour on, off, on, off for days. They said three days, four nights of just constant pumping. And they could not keep, it, keep up with it. They, they knew they were going to sink in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. You know, there was no relief. There were no other vessels. They couldn't see the rest of the fleet. It was said hands that never had never known work were set to set to work. So, so society that that rigid class structure that existed, especially at the time in England, completely broke down because you know it was either that or uh, we were all going to sink. Well, they're all going to sink anyway, but they were just kind of pr- waiting for something to happen. You know, and you see that in the opening scene of the Tempest, where the you know sailors are saying to the nobles, you know, get out of my way, basically. We're we're trying to run the ship. The nobles are kind of offended by it, but the fact is, if you don't let the people do what they're supposed to do, we're all going to die.
0: Once the passengers and crew find themselves stranded in Bermuda, decisions have to be made about how to continue onwards to Jamestown. During this process, Stephen Hopkins input about the Lieutenant Governor Sir Thomas Gates lands him on charges of mutiny. Andrew, why was Stephen Hopkins accused of mutiny? And does he face punishment for speaking out against Gates?
1: Well, yeah. And 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 here's the thing. There had been a bit of a division that became apparent once they sighted Bermuda and were able to find their way to, sh- to shore, getting the ship wedged into this uh, uh, coral reef and be able to evacuate everybody off of the ship. Now, Bermuda was completely unpopulated. In fact, it was, it was considered, it was the Isle of Devils. It was not a place where any ship wanted to go because the reefs around it would just tear your ship apart. The only people that had ever been there were shipwrecked Spanish sailors, but there was nobody there. It was a desert island. They get ashore there and they realized that, you know, the Isle of Devils is actually a completely wonderful place with uh, pigs that had been left there set ashore by the Spanish just in case other shipwrecked sailors were there. So they, they had these uh, you know, pig, wild pigs that were there, sea turtles, birds and the birds, eggs and all sorts of things. And palm tree, uh, palm tree hearts. They, they were cutting down trees and you know, eating the palm tree hearts and such. And it was really a paradise, a tropical paradise that they had crashed onto coming from England where everybody was leaving because it was not a great place to be. It was, it was considered overpopulated. And so these people were heading to Jamestown, where it was known to have a high mortality rate due to disease and conflict with the uh, native of Virginia. So the thing is that once they got ashore, there was this tension between Gates, the acting governor at the time, who was a military man and had served in uh, the Netherlands and such. And he was in charge of the settlers and the soldiers. And on the other hand, you had Summers, who was the admiral, and he was leading the sailors and such. And they basically broke into two different camps because Gates was very severe and he ran things like uh, basically martial law. So one of the sailors killed another one of the sailors, and Gates wanted the guy executed. Summers, knowing that skilled seamen were hard to fly, come by on a desert island, said, No, let's not have that happen. And, and that wouldn't have been the punishment at sea. And so basically Summers was trying to get his his skilled people away from Gates, who was just going to, you know, start hanging people or having them shot or such if they, you know, if they had if they were giving him problems, because they needed to actually build two vessels. Gates wanted to build a vessel to rescue themselves. They realized they didn't have The vessel they were building wasn't going to be big enough for everyone, and so they were trying to leave. Now, if you're coming from England, where things were poor, and you're heading to Jamestown, where things are probably even more treacherous, and instead you're at this space in between, which is wonderful, a number of the people were saying, why are we trying to leave this place? Perhaps we should go someplace else. Perhaps we could stay here. They weren't in a rush. And so then around around Christmas time, there's no exact date. Word comes that Stephen Hopkins had confided that the governor, Gates, actually had no authority. He was supposed to be the acting governor of Virginia. This was not Virginia. This was not England. It was not Spain. It was kind of nowhere. But he didn't have the authority. His charter didn't give him the authority, authority to order people around and to do such. And word got back to Gates. Gates had Hopkins brought before him, bound. And uh, convened a martial court and he was sentenced to death for mutiny. And he begged Hopkins begged for his life to say, you know, he had, you know, a wife and, and children at home. And if he was executed, that was pretty much a, a death sentence for the widow and the orphans back home as well. And then there was the intervention by Captain Newport and Strachey to be able to say, no, we should not, you know, perhaps you should spare his life. And so Gates decided to listen to the better sort and spare Hopkins' life. And from then on, there was no more word about, you know, Hopkins creating any trouble. There were were other problems, people causing problems and such, some running away, some challenging the authority of Gates, but uh, Hopkins didn't give any problem after that. And the thing is that he himself, he had been picked on board to be the assistant to the minister, Reverend Buck. And so he wasn't just, you know, some some laborer who was brought along, he was somebody who was actually, you know, working and doing this, helping the religious services and such. So he, meaning that he could read and write, he could reason, you know, he could look at this situation and say, well, I don't think that this guy has the authority to order me around to build the ship or whatever else. And it was true. Was he fomenting rebellion? I don't know. If they had been anywhere else in Brazil, China, wherever else, Gates wouldn't have been able to tell him
0: In the play, the character Stefano is certainly trying to overthrow the leader of the island, so that could be seen as one parallel with Stephen Hopkins' story of mutiny. But another Mm -hmm. primary characteristic of Stefano in the play is that he carries around a container of sack, which is an alcoholic beverage, and Stefano nurses this bottle throughout the play. Given that the real Stephen Hopkins was a Puritan... Andrew, I'm quite surprised to think a character based on a Puritan would be getting drunk or certainly that he would be making alcohol. Can you explain the real Stephen Hopkins and his association with alcohol?
1: Yeah, Stefano floats ashore on a butt of sack, meaning a a cask of sherry, basically. And then, yeah, and and he gets progressively drunker with that bottle throughout the entire uh, play, becoming less and less charming. But uh, as far as Stephen Hopkins is concerned, you know, I, my mother is a Hopkins who grew up on Hopkins Lane in East Orleans, Massachusetts. I'm a direct descendant of him. And we grew up, you know, I grew up with a story that, you know, is essentially an oral history of the Mayflower story. My middle name, Giles, I'm named after Giles Hopkins, Stephen Hopkins' son. And I was always hearing at family meetings with my, um, or, you know, Thanksgiving or whatever else with my Hopkins cousins, I would hear my uh, uncle saying, well, you know, he, he was on the Mayflower, but he was different. He wasn't one of those religious nuts. He was not a member of the congregation. But the thing is, there is a great pushback by people in Southeastern Massachusetts, the old colony, the former Plymouth colony, that we were not Puritans. Now, I know Puritan could, you know, has been considered perhaps a pejorative to be able to describe anybody who was, you know, more extreme than the Church of England. If the people who were the Mayflower referred to as the the saints, were separatists. Hopkins, who grew up in a different part of England, was an anti-conformist, perhaps a brownist, which would be even more to the extreme, which would be meaning that not only are you rejecting the Church of England, but you're rejecting a lot of centralized authority to the point of which uh, you know we would say it would almost be like a, a very early form of libertarianism, In other words, trying to get away from any sort of authority to be able to say things, and that people should be able to, you know, covenant with God in their own way. So, as far as so on the religious side of things, that's how we've viewed it as very, very small religious involvement in your day to day life. But at the same time, Hopkins himself married into a family of tavern keepers back in England. And so he would have had a background not only in the serving of alcohol but the making of alcohol and since you know alcohol was ever present because of the poor quality of water hopkins would have not only been you know associated with alcohol it's very possible that that's one of the reasons why they were he was going to jamestown because jamestown had very bad water and they were looking for people with skills on this third supply, this third relief, this this relief mission to Jamestown, they were looking for people with skills, and one of those skills would have been as someone who could make alcohol. Now, in Bermuda, they do start making some alcohol from what they have there, including making alcohol from the juniper berries that are part of it, the, from the, the cedar trees that are there. You know, that's an early form of gin, and at the same time, they're also making something called Something from the palm tree hearts and fermenting that. So, you know, wherever, where the, wherever the English go, uh, alcohol follows. <laughs> they come up with some way to be able to, to get drunk. And so it, it's very possible that that association was there as well. Now, on the other hand, making Stefano a drunk simply allows him to become someone to make fun of, not take seriously. But the thing is that Stefano is a, a butler, which comes from uh, the original term bottler meaning someone who was actually a servant who would serve your alcohol to you. So therefore, that is a good close association between Stephen Hopkins, the tavern keeper, who later ran a tavern in Plymouth, Massachusetts, or the Plymouth Colony, and you know Stefano, who is serving the alcohol, being, being the one who's bringing the alcohol around, but perhaps enjoying more of it himself than anyone else.
0: When the story of the English going to the New World is told today, there's often a heavy focus on the English imposing their presence on the Native Americans. So I was surprised to hear about two passengers on the sea venture, Namantak and Maychumps. You can correct my pronunciation there, but they were natives of Virginia that had traveled to London as emissaries and now were on the sea venture returning to Virginia. Andrew, were ambassadors and political representatives for the Native tribes routinely traveling back and forth from England and the new colony?
1: The important thing to be able to point out, and this was pointed out in in our film, is that early on, you know, there were more Native Americans speaking English in England than there were English in North America, certainly speaking Native languages. At this point, Nomantic and, and Metchumps were sent over from Virginia, basically, by Powhatan to be able to find out what these English were like. And the problem was that we don't exactly know whether they were on board this vessel or not. According to John Smith, they were on the sea venture. There's not a lot of mention about that. But one of the ideas is that they had gone off when they were in Bermuda. These two Native Americans had gone off by themselves, you know, had their own separate camp, so to speak. And then one of them just disappears. And so that is a question right there of whatever happened to this second person. And it's believed that that story, whether it was on the sea venture or some other shipwreck or something like that, that would be the basis of the character Caliban. Now, getting back to what uh, your question was, yes, and I think the most famous ambassador, emissary to England coming from North America would have been Matoka, or as we know her more popularly, Pocahontas. She married one of the Sea Venture survivors later on, after she herself had been kidnapped by the English and brought to Jamestown. yes, you know, She later married John Rolfe, the man who introduced tobacco to Virginia. He had made his fortune there, and the Virginia Company was looking to you know, show her off, so to speak, look at what your support of the Virginia company is bringing this, you know, Anglicized lady, Christianized lady, who was a native of Virginia, to England to meet, among other things, King James himself. And so, you know, she was really used as a PR vehicle, but she was able to be there. The only, the saddest thing was, is that after she had uh, given birth to a son, they were on their way back to Virginia after concluding this trip, and she doesn't even make it out of the Thames. She gets sick, and they bring her ashore at Gravesend, and she passes away there. The interesting thing, bringing this back to Stephen Hopkins, though, is that it was very likely that he was on board the same vessel that Pocahontas was on when she went to Virginia, went from Virginia to England in the first place. He was returning home at the time, and so, and he was in London at the same time as well. So the question becomes, you know, who was at Pocahontas's funeral in Gravesend? It's very possible that Stephen Hopkins was there. God knows that would make an interesting story to find out who was present at her burial.
0: When we see the character of Stefano being friends with Caliban, a native, is this friendship a reflection of Stephen Hopkins's life as well? Did Stephen Hopkins operate as an ambassador to the native tribes? Was that his role on the sea venture or a reason why he ended up again on the Mayflower later? I'm I'm wondering why he did so much traveling back and forth. What was he accomplishing?
1: Yeah, it, it is interesting because we notice that art is, imitates, life imitates art in this particular case, because at first Hopkins is going over, he's leaving his family behind and he's doing what what, what people were doing, going to Jamestown, seemed they could find a better life for their family because of the changing in agriculture and such and changing fortunes for, for farmers in England at the time. You know, he was looking at things and be able to say, well, he was, you know, let's see what's happening in Jamestown. I'll may, I'll do my seven years basically indenture to the company, and see what's possible. Maybe I could bring my family over, or just you know make some sort of fortune in in Jamestown. However, you know he ends up the assistant to the minister. Uh, gets into trouble in Bermuda. But the thing is, it's very possible once he's in Jamestown, he still continues on as assistant to the minister. You know, there was a nearly ninety percent mortality rate for a lot of those settlers. And yet he survived. And, you know, we figure out that perhaps, you know, he was not toiling away in the fields or else he probably would have gotten sick as well. So it's possible if he's the assistant to the minister at the time that Paul Cahannes is originally kidnapped and then brought to Jamestown and Christianized, it's possible that Hopkins had a role in that religious education, so to speak. He would have been present at her marriage to John Rolfe. He could have been part of the company to bring when she went back to England as well. It certainly would. W- the timing is right. But then later on, a couple of years later, he's in England and he's getting on board the Mayflower. He's one of the wealthiest men on board. He's got two servants along with his uh, second wife, um, Elizabeth, who's uh, pregnant and his kids. But he's not a member of the same, as I said, this, that the religious congregation that started the whole venture of the Mayflower in the first place. He's from a different part of England. He's got a different background, but it's very likely that he was recruited as a person who had expertise in North America and certainly with the Native Americans. And so, and they're headed to that mouth of the Hudson River, which was the northern extent of Virginia Company's charter. And so it it was probably thought that he was their local expert, their local guide, to be able to bring him along. And he served that purpose, in fact, in embassy uh, with Edward Winslow and uh, the Native American Squanto to go see Massasoit to confirm a treaty of friendship in the spring of 1621. So his skills were utilized early on so that they could survive that first rough year or first winter, especially. He continued to, uh, he later was running a tavern as well. It was also said, you know, I I had heard this uh, in my family and the the records do show that, you know, when Native Americans came and stayed in Plymouth, they stayed at Stephen Hopkins' house.
0: Now, you said he got on board the Mayflower with his pregnant wife. Is he the father of the baby that was born on the Mayflower?
1: Oceanus, yes. And we know that Oceanus did not survive that first year, we don't know whether, we don't believe that, that there's no record of Oceanus passing away aboard ship, but we, uh, we know that beyond that, there's no childhood records of Oceanus and Plymouth after that. But the thing is that Hopkins seems to have been pretty prolific, and, and his children seem to have been likewise. There seem to be many, many, many descendants of Stephen Hopkins. It's said that a million Americans can trace their, descendancy, uh, trace their ancestry back to just him.
0: I'll have to go check that out now. Now I want to go see if my ancestry intersects with Hopkins anywhere.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't swear on a Bible over that, but I mean, that, that is the, the figure I've heard. And the thing is, if there were, if after the first winter, half the um, Mayflower passengers died and there were only about 50 left, five of them were Hopkinses. That means that 10% of the colony was descended from him already. So, you know, extrapolate that over uh, 12, 13 generations of Americans.
0: It certainly seems plausible to me. I'll, I'll take it. Now, yep. Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, was first performed in London on November 1st, 1611. Would right. any of the survivors of the Sea Venture voyage have been there at that time to possibly see this play performed?
1: Right. And that, and yeah, that's what I was saying. And I, I believe I misspoke a little bit earlier is that Strachey himself. Arrived back in uh, in London, he would have gotten there in time. Not not that I think it'd be a stretch to say that he would have been invited to the banqueting hall to see that first performance. But it's possible that the Tempest was actually performed at Blackfriars before then. Strachey himself had been part owner of a boys' company that was at Blackfriars before um, Shakespeare himself had uh, uh, become part owner of, of Blackfriars. And so the thing is that it's very possible that Strachey saw a play, whether it's at Blackfriars or possibly, you know, at the Banqueting Hall with King James, was able to see a play that could have been very close to what he experienced. You could imagine that he would probably be really happy, probably really resentful <laughs> that his words were being picked up and used for this uh, this, this great play and, and spectacle and such. You know, he did run in the same circles as, as Shakespeare, but he was not nearly as successful. But He would have certainly been, he would have been around to be able to hear the buzz about it. He probably smiled through gritted teeth (laughs) to see, to see, because especially the opening scene of the Tempest and uh, his account of the wreck are very close, very close. You can start extrapolating, you know, other things from there, as far as the story is concerned, Stephen Hopkins and Miranda and and all the rest, but it certainly would have been probably a little bit too close for comfort for him.
0: Well, I know we would love to explore the life of Stephen Hopkins further, and especially all of these tendrils, these just tantalizing tendrils you've given us about him being a part owner at the Blackfriars before Shakespeare and getting to check out King James in the banqueting hall. I know we there's just so much more to explore. What are some of your favorite books or resources in addition to your wonderful documentary film that you've put together that we can use to learn more?
1: Oh, well, it was important when we we're making our film that we have a very strong Present representation by uh, Native Americans. And that's why a member of the Wampanoag tribe became part of our crew. This Land is Their Land is a great book about the Wampanoag tribe from here in, in Southeastern New England before and after the Mayflower arrives. It certainly gives a great deal of background. At the same time, Here I Shall Die Ashore by Caleb Johnson was basically groundbreaking because prior to Caleb's work. Uh, uncovering the background of Stephen Hopkins in uh, Hampshire, it was thought that Stephen Hopkins actually came from a different part of England.
0: Oh, fantastic.
1: He fixed that. And so, and we were lucky to have Caleb along when we happened to be uh, filming in England at the time. And he's, he's in the film itself. So I would say those two. And then uh, I believe there are a number of other, uh, other books there, but uh, a number of books have been written about Stephen Hopkins more recently uh, with coming of the 400th anniversary um, in 2020. So, uh, but I would say it was really important for us, especially for uh, Kayla's book and the, that one, This Land is Their Land about the Wampanoag as well. And then, they, I mean, the countless books on, on Pocahontas and countless books you know, about, the, about the Mayflower and such, but I would say those two were the, the strongest ones
0: we will link to these books as well as a few extras and the documentary from Andrew Buckley, all about Stephen Hopkins and the relationship to Stefano and the Tempest in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there to see those. Now, Andrew, we ask everyone this next question here at that Shakespeare life. And that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted Island. My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those.
1: Well, I have, over the past couple of weeks, been listening to many of your podcasts, so I have I have a very prepared answer, and it's the, what occurred to me the first time as soon as I heard the question, and it is unchanged, and that would be, if someone said the complete works of Shakespeare, then I think it qualifies that you could have any collection of books. So therefore, I would pick Frank Herbert's Dune, all of them, all six books, because it's rich. <laughs> it's enlightening. I think it would probably be very inspiring to get through a, uh, a rugged habitat. And at the same time, since we don't know how long I would be there, i probably come up with uh, all sorts of other uh, glossaries about it and write one of my own.
0: That would be an excellent selection to keep you busy and, and never run out of things to read, for sure. Mm. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about?
1: We've had such a good run with this documentary, both on uh, PBS stations across the country, uh, and uh, and I continue to do uh, events and screenings with Mayflower Societies. And it seems that there are so many Shakespeare theaters that are putting on The Tempest this year, from The Globe, the American Shakespeare Center, the Folger is going to be doing it, Folger Shakespeare Library, uh, Chicago Shakespeare, Dallas Shakespeare. So I'm going to be looking to do live screenings and events there. But at the same time, I, this originally started off as a nonfiction book proposal, And that's what I'm working to conclude right now to be able to get to an agent. So basically a companion book to this to be able to add a lot more detail, you know, basically this discussion in text form, you know, for every single spot that we stopped along the way for Stephen Hopkins going back and forth and back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean.
0: That is fascinating. I'm thrilled to hear that your documentary is doing so well, and I can't wait to read the book because I know that the documentary was really exciting and eye-opening, but just to get to dive into the, just the details there of what all is behind that story will be fascinating. So best wishes to you on getting that published. Andrew Buckley, thank you so much for being here this week and taking us through the history of Stephen Hopkins and his relationship to Stefano in The Tempest. This is really an exciting conversation.
1: Great. Thanks. I've really enjoyed this.
0: As I mentioned earlier, the show notes for today's episode are where you can find more information on Andrew Buckley, as well as where to watch his documentary on Stephen Hopkins and his relationship to Stefano of Shakespeare's play. You'll also find links there to the books and resources we recommend you can use to learn more. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 210. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP210. Just like Shakespeare, our show is powered by our patrons. If you enjoy learning about the life of William Shakespeare along with us here each week, then consider becoming a patron. Patrons get access to detailed show notes and bonus episodes. Learn more and sign up today at patreon.com slash Life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life.